want you to imagine with me this morning that growing up there was someone that you had a crush on. Do you remember those days when maybe the members of the opposite gender went from the enemy to, hey, maybe they were all right after all? And uh, you started to like somebody. I don't know if you can remember this. I don't know if you were ever at a sleepover and all of a sudden everybody kept asking you over and over, who do you like? Tell us, right? Um, or you would play that game, I think it was called Mashed. Does anybody, where you had to pick like three people, maybe you could see yourself marrying someday. You know, and so you, either, but you know there is someone, and maybe you don't want to share it with anybody, but uh, there is someone you think that's kind of special and you your hands get sweaty when that person's around and your heart beats a little faster. And as time goes on and the story is fully told, that person ends up kind of hanging around with other people and not you so much. And let's just say that maybe even someday they start going out with your best friend or maybe your cousin or somebody like that. And all of a sudden they are really into your best friend or your cousin and all of a sudden they get engaged and now your cousin comes to you and says about the person that you used to like, hey, will you be the best man at my wedding? Can you imagine kind of an awkward situation you might find yourself in? That's what we want to look at this morning actually. This is a profound spiritual point that we're making. We want to look at the best man of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Turn with me to John chapter 3, and let's get into the Word, and let's see a guy who was willing not to be the, the bridegroom, but to be the best man. You know, when John the Baptist came on the scene, all of Jerusalem was coming out to see him, to hear him preach, to be baptized by him. I mean, the Jewish people, they just wanted to know more about John the Baptist. And now, as Jesus comes on the scene, we see that there was an opportunity for perhaps a rivalry or a competition between them. At least that's what John's disciples thought of it as. But I want you to see the example of humility that is before us in the best man of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Read with me our text for today. John chapter 3, verses 22. We'll go all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 36. Please follow along with me as I read. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. And he who comes from above is above all. He who is king of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so here the Apostle John, who's writing this gospel, he tells us of an account that's not given to us in the other gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how at some point in time, John and his disciples were baptizing, and not too far away, Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, and you get a sense here of a little bit of envy, a little bit of rivalry coming out in the hearts of some of John the Baptist's disciples. Hey, we used to be the hot thing. Everybody was coming and over to hear you preach and to be baptized with us. And look, now they're all going after Jesus. Now, if you look at verse 24, you get a little note here in parentheses, for John had not yet been put in prison. And what John the Apostle is doing when he writes that is he's trying to say, hey, I'm telling you something that happened before what the other Gospels tell you about John, John the Baptist, okay? So he, John has decided that this story, this example of the way John the Baptist responds to what could be some kind of baptism competition, who can dunk the most people here, the way he responds to that, there's a lesson to be learned and the, the Apostle John wants us to see. And he wants us to see, even look down at chapter 4, verse 1. Here's another little note that it says in the next chapter. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, okay, so people were going, Jesus was becoming more popular than John the Baptist. And then here's another little parenthesis. Although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, okay? So John, he's trying to set the stage here that there was a time when John the Baptist's popularity started to uh, decrease and the popularity of Jesus started to increase and we can learn something from the way that John the Baptist responds to that, okay? John the Baptist always had his relative Jesus that he knew from birth who he knew was way cooler than he was and was eventually going to get the girl, the bride, the church, the people were going to follow Christ and not him. See, this was something that John the Baptist understood. In fact, you could write down a little cross-reference here of Luke 1, 41, and it says it again in Luke 1, 44, that when, even when John the Baptist is inside of his mother's womb, before he's even born, his mother being Elizabeth, who was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and when their two moms got together, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, from before he was even born, it says that John the Baptist started kicking and leaping in his mother's womb because he was so excited that Jesus was there in Mary's womb. Before they were born, these guys were bros, and John the Baptist was getting excited about Jesus. This is biblical, all right? I'm not making this up. Read it, Luke 1, 41 and 44. And no, I mean, you cannot, no one says anything better about a man in the Bible than what is said about John the Baptist. If there's someone you want to be when you grow up, it's John the Baptist. He's held out as an example. 
In fact, the Apostle John not only includes this whole section about the humility of John the Baptist, but if you write down another reference in John chapter 10, verse 42, he says that when a lot of people started believing in Jesus in a certain geographical region, he says the reason a lot of those people believed in Jesus is because that's the area where John the Baptist used to witness about Jesus, and God used John the Baptist's witness to cause a lot of these people to believe in Jesus. So even chapters later, John wants to point out, chapter 10, he's still pointing out that a lot of people went to Jesus because John the Baptist told them to go to Jesus. In fact, if you were here when we looked back at John chapter 1, we even think that the apostle John is one of those disciples of John the Baptist that he told to follow Jesus instead of him. So what are we trying to do? Are we trying to attract our own followers or are we trying to point people to follow Jesus Christ? Do we want the attention to be on us? Or are we happy standing outside of the spotlight and watching people worship and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? See, there's a humility here, a thinking lowly of yourself and thinking highly of Jesus that John the Baptist has that's being held out to us as a huge example. In fact, just turn to Matthew 11 with me real quick because i got to show you what Jesus and the bridegroom, the one who's going to get all of the glory, look what he said about his best man, John the Baptist. Just jump to Matthew 11, verse 11. And he starts it with his trademark, truly I say to you. Let me tell you something you may not believe, but you need to. Matthew 11, verse 11. I just want everybody to see this verse right here. It says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. There has been nobody greater, born of a woman, no greater man than John the Baptist. And that's a huge secret because it gets us into the mind of Christ and it shows us what Jesus thinks is greatness. Jesus thinks humility equals greatness. That's what Jesus thinks. Jesus realizes that he should get all the glory, and when someone humbles themselves and gives him the glory, Jesus calls that greatness among men. See? A little bit different than how we talk about greatness here today, right? Where we all want to make America great again. Humility, I believe, back in the founding fathers of our nation, I think there was some value of the virtue of humility. I don't really see a lot of value of humility these days in America. No, the more followers you can get, the more people listening to you you can get, the more popular you can become. That's the idea in, in American politics, in American churches even, in American celebrity. It's all about getting people to listen to you and to follow you. And we need to look inside of our own souls this morning and ask ourselves, do I want the attention do I want people to look at me, or am I content to point people to Christ like John the Baptist? Go back to chapter 1 of John, and let's just review what we already learned. We touched on this point briefly, that our witness that we have, our testimony, is not of ourselves. And remember how John introduced himself in John chapter 1, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. That was John the Baptist's claim to fame. If you're looking for the guy, it's not me. 
See, there's a humility here. And now, when you go back over to chapter 3, and this humility is tested, because now people aren't asking John who he is. They're all going out to see Jesus now. I mean, maybe there's a little hyperbole here in verse 26 when, when they say all are going to him, but clearly the popularity was shifting between Christ and John the Baptist. And look at the humility here we see in verse 27 of John the Baptist's response. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I mean, that's where we all need to be in our minds. Everything that I have, if it's anything good, it was given to me by God, including the ability to get out of bed this morning, including the fact that I woke up breathing today, including the fact that I even woke up at all. How many things are you and I taking for granted? And at some point, if we are not careful to give the glory to God and acknowledge Him and be thankful, at some point you will start thinking that you had to do with your own health that you have to do with your own accomplishments at work, that your family is really your doing. That's what you'll start to think about yourself. Every single one of us, we are by nature sinners, as we learned last Sunday, and pride is something that we all understand. That I will be tempted in my life, on whatever level it may be, to think that somehow I have made myself healthy by the way that I eat and by my diet. A lot of people thinking that around here in Orange County these days. Well, where did the food even come from, right? I mean, who gives us even the roof over our heads, the clothes on our bodies, the food that we eat every day, the ability to even eat food? You know when somebody says in a conversation, this happens to me sometimes, well, somebody says, well, I'm just glad I even am alive today. And when you can tell they really mean it, you know how you always respect that whenever you hear it? Because you realize naturally that's not the way we think. Like this, is, this is the idea of, of humility. Verse 27, I, I didn't have any one thing. I can't even receive one thing unless it is given from heaven. John says it out. Hey, who am I to have people listening to me? I don't have anything unless God gives it to me. In fact, you yourselves bear me witness. Hey, guys, why are you saying this? Don't you remember my motto that I said I am not the Christ? I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. And then he brings up this analogy of being the best man. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's me. I'm just the guy watching this wedding happen. I'm watching people fall in love with Jesus, watching Jesus save souls. That's all I am. I'm just the guy standing by the side cheering it on. And in fact, he says at the end of verse 29, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. This is actually what I thrive on. This is actually what gives me satisfaction, is when people go right past me and they go to Jesus Christ and they start to worship him, that's my whole mission. This is actually my greatest source of joy, John says, is watching people worship Jesus Christ. And then he says what is a great line, John 3.30, hopefully you've heard this before, that he must increase, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. And what I think he's really getting into there is eventually everybody's going to give their, their knee to the ground and their tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord, and I'm just going to die and disappear from the scene. That's really, uh, he's coming from heaven, and he's going back up into heaven, and he will be worshipped by all. I'm coming from the earth, and I'm going to die and return to the earth, and I'll be pretty much forgotten. 
And maybe a few people like the Apostle John or Jesus will mention my name. But most people, they'll look past me and they'll see Christ. And that's actually the way it's supposed to be, guys. In fact, it brings me joy to see that this is happening. Who here can say that? Who here can say that at the end of the day, you don't want your life to be about you, and if people forget you and you fade off into the background and disappear even from people's perspective, as long as they're focused on God and worshiping Christ, that's joy to you. See, this challenges who we are. And as we make life about ourselves and our pride, can we really say that we live for the glory of Christ and Christ alone? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, and you'll see here a, a statement about what God thinks about humility. That's really something I, w- I hope God will put on, on all of our hearts here this morning, um, and that we'll all go read. There's this really great Christian best-selling book that just came out, How to Be Humble Like Me. Have you guys heard about this new book that came out? I'm making it up. But what if the title was Humility, colon, and How I Attained It, right? Who, who could write that book? What do you do when you write a book about humility? Do you put your picture on the, on the cover of that book? Is it on the back cover? See, there's really no man who can teach us about humility. It has to come from God. It has to come from the, the scriptures. And here's some teaching. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That's talking about here in the church. And then it's saying, clothe yourselves, all of you. So this is a command for everybody. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then here's something that's repeated in James chapter 4 verse 6. And it comes from Proverbs chapter 3. That God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean here's a clue. Here's a little glimpse into the view of God that maybe there's some people here this morning who are wondering why God hasn't answered that prayer or why God hasn't blessed them in this certain way or why they feel distant from God. Well, maybe you just got the answer right here because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And literally, there's a command here that you see that all of us in the church need to clothe ourselves. We need to actively put on humility. And the idea here is like a slave who was going to do some kind of dirty work, and they would put on an apron. That's kind of the word picture here. Like, I'm going to do something that's kind of nasty business, that's going to get all over the place, and I'm a a lowly servant, and so I put on my apron, and I tie it on, and I get down into work. That's what it looks like here, to clothe yourself with humility. Some of you guys know when I was in college, I got a job, and and the job that I got, and I was desperate to get whatever job they would give me in my work-study program, and they decided that I would be the guy who worked in the dishroom of the cafeteria. And so people would put their trays with all their nasty leftover food coming in through the conveyor belt, and I would put on the apron, and I would go in there, and the nasty stuff would get all over me. That's the idea here. But there's nothing that's beneath me. I'm putting on the apron of humility, and I'm ready to do whatever it is my Lord wants me to do, no matter how messy it gets, how little credit. If I'm behind the wall and no one can see what I'm even doing, I put that on. That's how it's supposed to work here at at church. That's how it's supposed to work in our relationship with God. In fact, look at verse 6. It says, humble yourselves. Therefore, this is something we're supposed to do to ourselves. We put this on, this humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. See, you, you think lowly of yourself, you think highly of God, you let him worry about putting you where he wants you to, to be. You just humble yourself. 
And and notice, before we even get to another sentence, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we're all supposed to humble ourselves, and here's one thing we're supposed to do when we feel anxious, when we feel worried, when we are afraid, is we're supposed to take those cares and we cast our cares up to the one who cares for us. And I bet we've got some anxious and worried souls here among us this morning, and they just need to confront everyone who gets anxious and worried in your pride. That's what it's connecting to here. You think, well, when you're anxious, you're actually worried about what's going to happen. That's not pride. No, it is pride, because when you're anxious, you're relying on yourself, and you're realizing that yourself is not sufficient to the task at hand, that you can't overcome your own problem. You won't be able to get it done, and that's why you're anxious. That's why you're worried, because you're not in control, and it was pride to ever think you were in that position in the first place. And so when pride doesn't work is when worry shows up in our lives. When anxiety starts to take hold and we need to humble ourselves and pray to God and admit to him, I'm going to do nothing apart from you. I can't even get up in the morning without you giving me life and breath and every good thing comes from you. And so you humble yourself, you cast your cares up to the Lord and anxiety and worry go away because you're not trying to do it on your own strength anymore, but you're trusting in God. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Any other proud people in here? And it shows up in worry and anxiety. Those are just forms of pride in our hearts because they reveal about us that we're still thinking we can do it at the end of the day. Most deceptive thought that easily creeps in is that today is a hard day. Today is an easy day, and you can do today on your own. So you've never met a day that you're ready to do without God giving you everything you need and so we got to put on humility we got to get the apron on and be ready to serve in whatever way we're called to and i think that the reason that john the apostle is the one who tells us about the humility of john the baptist and gives us this great example that christ must increase and we must decrease is because i think the apostle john started out a pretty proud guy himself In fact, go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, and let's look at a story that happened between Jesus and the disciples. And this is John. Now, John, I don't know um, how he would feel about this story uh, later because it doesn't put him in the most flattering light. It kind of makes him look like a proud mama's boy, kind of like a spoiled child, if you know the story here. Uh, The heading here in in the ESV, uh, this is on page 825, the heading here is a mother's request. Uh, And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so that was James and John, two of the innermost closest disciples to Christ. They were the, the sons of thunder, they were sometimes called, the sons of Zebedee. They came up to him, the mother came up to Jesus with her sons. So all three of them are in on this together. I don't know how it worked, if mom threw out the idea or if the boys even went to mom and said, hey, this will look really bad if we say it, so will you say it for us, mom? I'm not quite sure how the scheme came together here. Um, And he said to her, what do you want? Like he knows this isn't going to be good. And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. No, no, just a small little request for Jesus that her two boys would have the best seats in all of heaven. 
right? I mean, isn't that what all the mothers in the room want? Don't you want your kids sitting right next to Jesus? Doesn't that even just kind of show the fundamental pride in our society that our kids are somehow better than all the other kids out there? Like when it's your mom's birthday and you say she's the best mom in the world, probably chances are she's actually not the best mom in the whole world. You know what I'm saying? Like there's been a lot of moms. Like how, who was even in a place to compare your mom to all the other moms that have ever existed? I mean, it's just kind of a ridiculous statement that we make. There's just this kind of pride. Like, of course, my sons will sit right next to you, Jesus. And you see that as they come before him. And Jesus answered, hey, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're signing up for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Referring to the wrath of God that he would experience on the cross. And they said to him boldly, proudly, we are able. That's the definition of pride right there. I am able. We are able. Not God is able, but we are able. And he said to them, oh yeah, okay, well you will drink my cup. And remember, James was was uh, killed very quickly into the book of Acts. You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, right? And rightfully so. You can imagine you would be angry too if one of your siblings all of a sudden started acting like they were the best and they would get to sit shotgun every time and you were going to be relegated to the back seat. It's not because the other ten were humble. No, they were just as proud and they were like, how come I don't get to sit next to Jesus, right? It's just, and Jesus is like, guys, team meeting. Called them to, to him and said, hey, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, okay, People who don't know God, that's the reference there. They lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Hey, you know how it works in the world where the boss wants to be the boss and he wants everybody to know that he has authority and that everyone should look to him? Well, it shall not be so among you, Jesus says to his disciples. You want to be great? Well, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself now, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And let me just redefine greatness for you guys right now, because I can tell you're not getting it. Greatness means you come to serve. Greatness means you consider yourself a slave. In fact, just the one who has all authority, the one who should get all of the glory, myself, referring to himself as the son of man, hey, even I came to serve and to give my life away for others. To pay for their debt of sin when I didn't have one. Point number one, let's put it down like this. Here's what we all need to do. You need to boost your slave esteem. Let's get that down for point number one, okay? You need to boost your slave esteem. Now notice, not your self-esteem. No, you don't need to think more about yourself. That's not what we're going for. You need to consider yourself a servant. That's what you need to think about yourself more. You need to have more what is lacking among Christians these days of this here-to-serve mentality. Not that I want to be in a position at the church where other people will appreciate me and notice me, but there is literally no position at this church that is beneath me because I've got my apron on and I'm ready to do the messy jobs and I'm here to serve. Oh, if we could have churches full of people who were here to serve at church and not to be served at church, we might just start to see revival in our land once again if we really had this kind of humility. 
See, who shows up at church ready to be the slave of everyone else, ready to be the doulos? That's a great New Testament word in the Greek language. If you've never heard that word before, you should write that down, D-O-U-L-O-S. It's a great word you see throughout the New Testament, and it describes the personal relationship that we have with Jesus, our Master, our Lord, that we are his doulos, his slave. And this was for the the person who was ready to do and had to do whatever the master said. That's how you need to think about yourself. That I'm here to serve. That when you have a job to do and you do it and somebody even tries to give you recognition and they try to say, hey, you did a good job. Hey, who am I but an unworthy servant? That's Luke 17, 10 right there. Who am I? In fact, maybe your answer would even be when you do a job and somebody tries to draw attention to you, your answer might be my pleasure. You ever met one of those people before? You ever go to Chick-fil-A basically is what I'm saying right now, right? You get your nuggets there and they bring it out to you and you say thank you and they say my pleasure. If you've gone to Chick-fil-A before, you know that they have been scripted, right? And some of the people pull it off. Like some of the best customer service I've ever had is at Chick-fil-A. So I'm not disparaging Chick-fil-A by what I'm about to say, but also some of the fakest customer service I've ever had has been at Chick-fil-A. Anybody want to say amen to that right now? Like you don't mean my pleasure. It would be better if you just don't say it at all. It just feels forced. This feels fake. This is, you don't want to get, you're not here to help me. I just asked you to help me, and I put you out. Have you ever gotten that impression from somebody? And then when they give you the thing that clearly it pained them to get you, like a napkin or something really costly to them, you know, my pleasure just doesn't, it just, it, when it's fake, it really rubs you the wrong way. And I'm afraid we've got a lot of fake my pleasure going on at church these days. I'm afraid we've got a lot of, yeah, I'm here to serve, and uh, yeah, where's the recognition for me here at the church? Because I'm doing a lot that other people aren't noticing around here, and uh, when am I going to get some appreciation? Sure, it's my joy to serve, just as long as I get acknowledged at the end of the day. There's a lot of that going around. And Jesus, he just says, hey, let me, let me rethink this with you guys. What is greatness? Greatness is being a slave of our master. And all of us, if we're honest, we know what it's like to have sibling rivalry. We know what it's like to have envy and jealousy. We know what it's like when we're doing something and somebody else is doing the same thing that we're doing. Whether it's something to do with our family or our work or maybe here at church. Like there's somebody who's now maybe a competitor is a word we might use. Or somebody who's doing the same thing I'm doing. And naturally everybody kind of sizes the two people up and they start to rank them. That's kind of naturally how we work. And it's hard sometimes when somebody you know is getting the credit to just be able to look at your friend, at your brother, at your sister, and just be glad for their success and just cheer and root them on. Like who can you watch somebody else get the glory and legitimately be excited for them without feeling like why am I not getting this attention right now? So we know this with with the kids as they grow up. I got to talk to one of our kids here at the church, a a fourth grader, and he's been having some some problems with his little sister, two years younger. And I said, what's the problem with your little sister? And he said to me, she's annoying. That's what he said. And I said, really? Why is she annoying? Well, today we went around 
table pizza, and we were playing some video games, and this was a direct quote, and she won all of the tickets. <laughs> Can you just feel the pain on the end of that statement? Like, she's got this big old long thing of tickets. She's folding them up, you know, and I don't have any tickets. Mm. He was very upset about this. And then he says, one thing she likes to do is brag. She likes to say that I have a lot of tickets. And I'm like, hmm, let me ask you a question, young man. Do you ever brag? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I have the tickets, I like to let other people know that I have the tickets. Well, I wonder where she learned it from, see? And you could just, this was, it was so natural, it was so honest, it, 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 it was just how it is. Why is my sister winning tickets right now? Can somebody stop the injustice, you know? It's just how it was, see? And for some reason, in his sinful nature, this fourth grade boy, he could not say, way to go, sis. Way to win those tickets. I'm proud of you, little sis. He could not find joy in somebody else's blessing and success. He could only find bitterness that the attention and tickets weren't coming to him. See? Are you here to be a slave? Your slave is at the bottom. Okay? A slave is not comparing themselves to anyone else in a competitive way, trying to outrank anybody. No, a slave understands where they belong. And that's how we're supposed to esteem ourselves lowly, see, as slaves of Christ. Go to Philippians chapter 2, and you'll see that John the Baptist isn't even our greatest example of humility, although clearly being held up as an example to us in the Scripture. No, the greatest example of humility is actually the one who should get all of the glory, who should get all of the praise, who we should find joy in seeing him being worshipped. It's Jesus Christ is actually the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who has all authority is the one who's the greatest example of humility. If that doesn't teach us the value of this virtue, then I don't know what will. Here's the verse that I shared with this poor, ticket-deprived fourth grader. was Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Do nothing, nothing, it says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. See, you're not going to be competitive with the other people in your house if you're the slave of the house. You're not going to be competitive with the other people in your workplace if you're the slave of the workplace. You're not going to feel competitive with the other people here at church if you come here to serve and not to be served. And so it says nothing is allowed from your own selfish ambition. No, everything in humility. Let's consider others higher than ourselves on the pecking order here. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's how you should learn this mindset. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's how you get humility. Who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though it was rightfully his. We don't rightfully get the glory. He did, but still he emptied himself by taking the form of a, what does it say there, everybody? Servant. The Lord of all takes the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, he lowered himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, that's the lowest place you could possibly get. To be lifted up, to be having your hands and your legs and your feet nailed into this wood and to die a criminal's death, to be executed in such a way that was really meant to torture you as it killed you. That's where we're supposed to be willing to go. We're supposed to be denying ourselves, taking our cross, and following Christ. And where did Christ lead us? Well, he led us straight to the grave, straight to death, straight to suffering, straight to persecution. And here we are wondering if we should get credit when those are the things that are promised to us. They have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, the Lord of all, who humbled himself to be at the point of death. And here's how God thinks of humility. Here's how God rewards humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, well, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord He's the boss to the glory of God the Father. And when it says Lord there, see that's the opposite of doulos. Doulos means slave. Well, Lord is this Greek word that's very common, kurios, K-U-R-I-O-U-S. If you want to write it down in, in English, kurios. And it's saying that, hey, because he became the form of a slave, because he humbled himself, here's what God does with people who humbles, humble themselves, is God looks at that, he sees it as great, and he always exalts humility. He always does, and he does it here with his son. In fact, his son humbled himself to the lowest place, so God will exalt him to the highest place. He will be the name that is above every name, and there will come a moment, literally, in the history of the world when every single created being will bow and confess, Jesus is the boss. That's all what they're going to say. And everything will be considered right. Everyone's slave esteem will be at maximum capacity and we will esteem our Lord and worship Him as He finally deserves to be worshipped. That's where it works. That's where it's all headed. And we've got to get in mind now this eternal heavenly perspective that heaven views highly what is lowly looked at here on earth. And that leads us right back into what John says about Jesus. Go back to John chapter 3, and there's kind of this section of teaching, this paragraph, starting in verse 31. After John makes the famous statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, there's this chunk of text here from verses 31 to 36, and there's some debate whether John the Baptist said this or whether this was the Apostle John's commentary I would probably read it as a, I don't know why we put the end of the quotes there on verse 30. I would probably read this as more of what John the Baptist had to say. But he wants us to know something about Jesus that's very clear. In verse 31, he says, he who comes from above is above all. Like whatever the pecking order is, let me tell you who's at the top. Let me tell you the top name who gets top billing and gets all of the credit. He's the one who's above all because he came from heaven down. We're just all coming from down and going back to down. We're earthly. He's heavenly. He came down to us. He's above us. That's what John wants to make very clear. Point number two, let's put it down like this. Always view Jesus as above you. 
Like whenever you're thinking about Jesus, it's giving us a spatial analogy here. It's giving us like literally in kind of a physical way, we should see Jesus as above us. Like when we just think about Jesus in our minds, the very uh, disposition of our physical body should look up as if Jesus comes from above where we come from. See, that's what we're always trying to do here at Compass Bible Church. It's our third distinctive. We want to maintain a high view of God. That's so important. We believe that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. We'll even clarify it to say that how you view Jesus is the mo- it will de- determine your entire life. The biggest, most important thought that you think is your thought of Jesus. And you must see him as from above Now, if you were here on Wednesday night when we were getting into how Jesus saves and we actually saw somebody respond and ask Jesus to save them, we read John chapter 3, verse 3. Look back at that verse with me. And Jesus gave us just an amazing, clear statement here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And one of the things we learned about what it means to be born again is another way you could translate that Greek word anathen is that it was born again, born from above. And that's the same exact word we now see in John 3, 31, that Jesus is from above. So you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself born again. God has to save you. Jesus has to save you. Which means you view Jesus as higher than yourself. You see him as the one who came from above. And so regularly, throughout the day, throughout the week, you're going to need to reorient yourself and you're going to need to make sure that you're looking up and seeing Jesus above you. That it's not like your concerns and the concerns of Jesus competing for your thoughts and attentions and time throughout the day. But no, the relationship always stays in the right balance that he's up here as Lord and you're down here as slave and it never starts to get out of whack. Because naturally, in our pride, we will want to think that we have to do some things for ourselves, or we can do some things by ourselves, and we will bring Jesus down to our level if we're not careful. And so John says, hey guys, let's just make this very clear, that Jesus is above all. Whatever your name amounts to in life, whatever reputation you will end up having, and when people hear your name, how they will view you, no matter what your name means, Jesus' name is above yours. That's what the Bible wants to make very clear. And that when someone views it in the right relationship, when someone thinks a little of themselves and a lot of Jesus Christ, man, that is the person that God esteems. That is the person that God actually views very highly. Go back to Isaiah and let's hear from, from God, from his heavenly perspective. And how God values humility. Go to Isaiah chapter 57. Everybody grab your Bible. And let's try to find these passages together. Isaiah 57 verse 15. It's on page 617 if you got one of our Bibles. And you, it just gives us a glimpse into the glory of God. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the glory of God, God was so high and lifted up that the train of his robe Like God was the king in in heaven on the throne and the little part of his robe filled the temple. This massive structure in the the city of Jerusalem. Well, just the back of God's robe filled the temple. 
And Isaiah, he gives us this high view of God that's repeated throughout this book. And here's what God says in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. See, it's always just reorienting yourself that you have to see God as above you. That's what the scripture is always doing. He's high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Like, Get a glimpse here into the transcendence of God outside of time, eternal, outside of sin, holy, other than us. Here's what God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. And here's who's going to dwell there with me. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's who God's esteeming. That's who God's looking for. Someone who's lowly. And here's what God will do. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. Like here's God in glorious splendor. High and lifted up. Outside of time. Outside of sin. And he's looking down. Scanning the hearts of the men, women, and children here at this church this morning. And he's looking for someone who considers themselves a slave and thinks lowly. And he wants to give you life here this morning. That's what it says. He wants to revive the soul of the humble. Maybe we're coming in here so weary and so tired because we are trying to do so much in our own strength and by ourselves. And God's thinking right now in heaven, if you would just get off your high horse and humble yourself, I'll give you the life that you need. I'll revive your soul. I'll give you that freshness in your spirit. And I'll renew that vitality in your relationship with me if you'll just stop trying to do it of yourself and humble yourself here this morning. And look up and see me, and then you'll be in the right proportion. Go to the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, where we get this same kind of reorientating picture of our relationship with God. It says here in Isaiah chapter 66, this is the last chapter of this magnificent work of literature that Isaiah writes, thus says the Lord, and it's so great that we get these quotes as if the Lord is speaking straight to us. We know the whole word is God's word, but here's God being quoted. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Just to put you in proper proportion. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? Do you think the, the temple's a big deal? No. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be declares the Lord. So he's putting himself high above us. But this is the one to whom I will look or to whom I will esteem. This is the kind of man or woman I will value highly. He who is, you knew it was coming, humble and contrite in spirit, willing to own up to their sin, broken over their sin, and who trembles at my word, who literally fears not doing what God has told them to do because he is the boss and we are the slave and if the boss says that we should do something, well certainly then it must be done. And so we tremble at his word. That's what God is looking for. I mean, right now, 
You know, there's a lot of ways you can evaluate how a church is doing, you know. People look at how many people are coming or, or how many people are baptized. These are the criteria people who do church try to use to evaluate church. Well, let's try to think about, uh, think about church from God's perspective. How many slaves do we have here this morning? How many people came here today seeking nothing for themselves and ready to give God the glory. When God looks in the hearts of us here this morning, how many humble people is he seeing? Because that's how God looks at it. That's how he values it. Where I'm down here, and the reason I'm down here is because God is so high up here. I'm not just trying to denigrate us and, and put us down. No, I'm trying to exalt his name, see? And when his name is rightfully exalted, then we have a more accurate view of ourselves. And if I'm a slave, and he's my master, then, then something comes out very clear at the end of our passage. Turn back to John chapter 3, and this line just kind of jumps out at you as we finished up even reading our text. I don't know if it just kind of slaps you across the face, but go back to our text, because he makes his point that he's the Lord above all. And guys, listen, I'm just saying whatever I've learned from God to say, but I was born of the earth, and I'm going back to the earth. He came down from heaven. Whatever he says is straight from God. We want people listening to him more than me. That's kind of the point John's making in this paragraph. And then he ends with this, John 3, 36. And it kind of, there's a, we've heard this somewhat before. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Well, that sounds like the most famous verse ever, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not, what? Perish, but have what? Eternal life. Well, we know that verse, but look, here's kind of a new slant on it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoa, that kind of got intense all of a sudden there. Like, hey, yeah, we all affirm that if you believe, it's by faith alone that we are saved. And so as soon as you believe, you are given the gift of eternal life. But what is clear here in this verse is that the faith alone that saves us is never alone. That if you really put your trust in the Lord, it will lead to obedience of the Lord in your life. In fact, this word here that's translated, does not obey, is a very interesting Greek word that you could kind of translate to disbelieve or to disobey. I mean, it's kind of those ideas are just tied together in this one Greek word. Like to not believe in God is to not obey his commands. Like here's what really reveals your faith or your belief is how are you doing at obeying the Lord? It's one thing to confess that he is Lord, but if you really believe it, well, you'll do what the Lord tells you to do because you're just a little slave and of course you're here to serve him. And so all of a sudden that phrase, we're used to kind of the John 3.16 language and the fact that the one who does not obey the Son still has the wrath of God on him right now because he is actively disobeying the Lord kind of hits you really quick there at the end of the passage. Like I think we all understand the basic analogy of a boss, okay? Okay. That if somebody has a boss and you don't do what your boss tells you to do, what is ultimately going to happen to you? You guys tell me this morning, you don't obey your boss, what's going to happen? 
Everybody knew the answer to that. At the workplace. So how come when we come over here to church on Sunday morning, obedience is somehow now accepted here among us? Disobedience is now somehow okay because our boss, he's not going to be like every other boss we've ever had. No, he's going to somehow tolerate disobedience? Where are you getting that idea from? Because it ain't from the scripture. No, let's just make it very clear. He is the Lord. He has authority over your life. And if you choose not to do what he says, well, his wrath remains on you. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you want to come to work today. No, he made the world. He gave you life. And you must obey him. There's no other way. In fact, go to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. I had the privilege of hanging out with our singles last night. We had an event, a fellowship. We had a bonfire uh, down at the end of Beach Boulevard, and it was a beautiful sunset. It was a wonderful time, and we got to look uh, at how... um, how Jesus is the Lord of the beach. And we talked about how if even the waves of the sea and even the wind, if even the elements of the physical world that we live in obey Jesus, then shouldn't you and I be obeying Jesus? And we looked at this verse. Here's just a question from Jesus to you, from your curios to you, his doulos. This is the master talking to you, one of his slaves here this morning. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, curios, curios, boss, boss, and not do what I tell you? So you and I, we have grown up uh, where we the people And the government is for the people and by the people and of the people. Would you look at the president as someone who is above you? Especially with our president right now. Does he have authority over you? Or did you get to decide who was president because you voted? I I was asking somebody about uh, their boss at work the other day. How are things going with their boss? Did they view their boss as authority over them? And they said, oh, I left that job. Now I'm self-employed. That's what they said to me, right? Like, oh, so good to be done with my boss. See, we live in a culture where literally you could walk down the streets of our nation and you could think to yourself that there is no one who has authority over you because you are free to exercise your own rights and be yourself. And we just need to reorient ourselves that there is one who has all authority over us. And when he tells us to do something, there is a legitimate expectation that it will be done. And it is shocking. There are consequences when someone, a slave, would dare to disobey the master. We need to bring obedience back. If we're going to say that Jesus is our Lord, then the only logical response is to do what he tells us to do. I leave you with that thought. What are you going to do in your life? Is there an area where you think it is somehow acceptable? You know the commands of Scripture, something that the Lord has commanded His slave to do, but instead of saying how high to His jump, you've got some excuse why you don't do it. There's no excuse if you're a slave and He's the boss. See, he must increase. He must. It's going to happen whether you want to or not. And we must decrease. We must. Because Jesus is eternal. And he's going to live forever. And he's going to reign forever. And everyone's going to worship him. And you and I are going to die. And it's only a matter of time. 
And everyone that follows us in this life, our precious little children who follow us around, anyone that we might disciple in life, that we might mentor in our vocation, people we might lead to Christ or take through partners or have in our small group here at this church, anyone who follows us, there will come a day when they must not follow us anymore. See, we're going to get old and our body's going to stop working. And maybe we're going to be confined physically and not able to do the things we were able to do. And we're going to realize, wow, that was all a gift that was given to me only for a little time. And now that gift is being taken away. And we're going to watch our kids and our disciples hopefully keep living for Jesus Christ as we fade to just a name on a slab somewhere, mostly forgotten by the world. And will you be able to say on that day that your joy is made full because he must increase and we must decrease? God, we come to you and we ask that you would humble us, God. We confess our pride. God, we confess the foolishness of thinking that we should get some credit, that we deserve something. God, the foolishness of thinking that we get to decide what we do with our lives, that we have authority even over ourselves. God, I pray that you will just give us a lowly impression of ourselves here this morning. God, we thank you for the example of your son who would humble himself to the point of death. We thank you for this example of John the Baptist who found joy in being Jesus' best man. And if everybody was going to follow Jesus and forget him, well, he was fine with that. God, make us that way, I pray. God, please make us a humble church that the name of Jesus might be exalted among us and that he might be seen as the high and lofty one. God, we do need revival. God, we do need you to give us life. We do need you to esteem us here at this church and to use us and that the gospel would ring out from us. But God, help us to just see ourselves in the right perspective, that we're the slave and Jesus is the Lord. And whatever he tells us to do, God, let it really be our pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.